It's good to see all of you again. And uh, it was good to be on the retreat and feel like uh, we got to know so many more people and uh, get close to folks, um, understand a little bit more about what makes Emmanuel tick. And uh, it's good to see good to see all of you this morning. Let us pray um, as we begin. Lord, may the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, like many of you, I'm sure, or some of you, I'm sure, um, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. Um, I grew up, my dad was a jockey. I grew up on the racetrack, uh, which is not the church. Um, <laughs> and um, and, uh, and uh, was completely unchurched until I was about 15 years old, and I met Christ um, at a youth retreat. And uh, I remember sort of coming into the church, and I remember talking about like what it meant uh, for me now to become a part of the family of God. This was the way people talked about this, right? That, that I was now part of the family of God. And I remember thinking, like, what does it mean now? How does this work itself out practically? That these people are my brothers and my sisters. You know, it seemed like the older folks in the church would call me brother. And, and I thought, that's interesting. Like, what does this mean? You know, what sort of claim does this lay on me? And what sort of claim do I have on them? How does, how does this work itself out? What does it mean that God is our father altogether and that Jesus is our brother? Um, how does it work itself out practically? And, I, and I, was, I remember wondering, is this like being adopted into a family where your whole identity sort of gets subsumed into the, into the identity of the family and you become one of them? Or is this more like a club, you know, with some rituals and some rules and some secret handshakes? And I, I remember I just didn't know. I didn't know how it was all going to play itself out. And I remember, too, um, there was one thing that really freaked me out um, as a a young believer, and that was when we would all uh, stand in a circle before a meal that we were going to share together, and everybody would grab hands, and it was that moment when the person who was supposed to pray was being selected. Do you guys remember this? Like, and you'd get all dodgy, like I'd be like, oh, my shoes are so interesting. You know, I mean, all of a sudden, the shoes become so interesting because I'm trying to avoid eye contact because I don't want to be picked. And it was because I just didn't know the words to say. I just didn't know, I didn't know how to pray. So it was a big moment for me um, when somebody got up one Sunday morning and invited everybody. They announced that there was going to be a new thing. The men of the church were going to get together um, on a weekday morning, and they were going to come together, and they were going to pray. And it was pretty early. Um, Seems like that's what men do. Uh, We always get together really early. Um, and I remember, uh, I remember just thinking about this opportunity to go and pray with the adult men in the church. And I thought, this is it, right? This is where I can go and learn. This is where I can go and, and, and learn how to pray. And I remember getting up on the days that I could pull it together, you know, as a high school student, getting up way earlier than normal um, on a school day, driving to the church and coming into the sanctuary where the chairs were stacked on the sides 
you know, because they were, it was midweek and they were cleaning the floor and not all the lights were on and the guys would walk in and they, you know, they weren't shaving and they had ball caps on most of the time, you know. And um, I remember sitting, watching them sit down in a circle of like 10 to 15 metal folding chairs and, um, and I remember being struck by the prayers of these men. Most of them were, you know, more than twice my age. I honestly don't remember much of the content of their prayers. I don't remember much of what what was said. But what really landed on me and what stuck was listening and how they talked to God, like how it was that they talked to Him. Uh, You should know this about my home church. Um, It was a charismatic church that sort of sprung up at the right at the the, the middle of the charismatic renewal, renewal, sort of the height of the charismatic renewal. And so people didn't come to our church because it was cool. They came to our church because it ha- they'd had an experience. And, and all kinds of different people had had an experience with the Holy Spirit from like surgeons and bankers to homeless people to guys who had just gotten out of jail, right? So this was really normal at my church. And so when I sat down in this circle, one of the first things that I noticed was what, that the ground was flat. I remember the, pedi- the pediatrician, the primary pediatrician that worked in the clinic that I went to as a kid, sat in this circle. And I remember thinking, it's one of the most powerful men I'd ever known, right? This guy could heal, right? I mean, that's in my mind. This is, you know, this guy's the go you got, guy you go to when you're sick. And I remember seeing him sitting next to a homeless guy, seeing the guy who I knew ran the bank in our community sitting next to the guy who just got out of jail. And the ground was flat there. And when they talked, they still sounded like men, but their voices took on this boyish quality when they talked. Because I think they all realized that they sat together helpless in many ways before the God who could help them, right? They, every week, brought to God the things in their lives that they felt like were beyond what they could manage. The things that were beyond what they could control. And I remember just being struck by that. These guys coming to their father for help in hushed, humble voices with things that they discerned were beyond their ability to fix or manage. And that's what I needed then in my life. That was the prayer school I needed. And that was one of the most important ways I was formed into a child in the family of God. The simple act of praying with those men shaped me. And it shaped me by giving me words to say. It shaped me by giving me an approach to God, a sense of a way to approach God. And most importantly, it set certain inclinations in me in place. Some of you may have studied spiritual formation, and I re- remember uh, when I first started studying spiritual formation, I was, I was deeply intrigued by uh, the different kinds of formation that were possible in different kinds of communities. And the family is actually a very unique kind of community. It's a very unique kind of shaping communities because families shape us at the deepest level of who we are. And the deepest level of who we are is not our choices or the decisions that we make, 
the deepest level of who we are are the inclinations that we automatically have in certain situations. You know, think about it. You may be facing a certain moral dilemma or an ethical question, and you may think, I've got to stop here and discern and figure out what is the right choice to make in this situation, right? What's the right choice? And that's one form of formation. It requires some diligence and some thought. But the formation that, our, that happens in our families is the kind of formation that puts you in a situation and assures that you are automatically inclined to make a certain kind of choice when you enter into that situation. I think about the family that I grew up in. And this is something that was true um, you know, for our whole lives. My mother, through the very force of her own personality, made us the kind of family in which kindness was the primary inclination. And meanness was just not tolerated. If you were a whited, you were kind. Now, not always, right? But the primary inclination of your heart, if you were a whited, if you really were one, and this was made clear, was that you were not mean. You were kind. Now, we'd have bouts of meanness, right? Obviously. Stumble. Carter's agreeing. Carter's agreeing why did sometimes have bouts of meanness. <laughs> but at the deepest level of who we are, the commitment was that we would be kind. Now, when we pick up the Psalms and begin to pray along with them over the next few weeks, I think it might be helpful to think of the book of Psalms as like a gathering of prayers sitting in metal chairs. Coming into a circle of people sitting and praying together. And it, I think, would be good for us to allow ourselves to begin to form an approach to prayer, an approach to God. Maybe the Psalms will give us some words that we didn't know we could say before to God. Give us some language with which to approach God. But my earnest prayer is more than anything is that is that as we begin to pray the Psalms together, that, that we would be shaped in the, at the level of our inclinations. Because if you look at the inclinations that exist in the Psalms, they're powerful. And they're shaped by the character of God Himself. If we look at the Psalms, we see that there's an inclination toward covenant faithfulness. There's a disposition toward fidelity that's grounded in the nature of God. There's a disposition toward justice, rightness as it's discerned by the character through the lens of the character of God himself. There's a disposition to care for the weak and for the poor. There's a disposition for the, the there's an inclination for, for those who look powerful and strong to be brought low and for the poor and the needy to be elevated. There's an inclination toward lament that, is an inc- that has within itself an inclination toward honesty and looking at situations and not looking at them through rose-colored glasses and not trying to put spin on it, not trying to make it better than it is, but looking reality square in the face and facing it with faith. I love the, I love the definition of lament, which is to complain in faith. I go to God, and I know that I can complain about how the world is, right? I can complain in faith. 
There is in the Psalms, over the course of the Psalms, it gets louder and louder and louder if you look at them. But there is an inclination toward praise, exuberant, loud, wild, cymbal-clashing praise, quiet, meditative, contemplative, caught up in wonder kind of praise too. There's an inclination toward trust, humble trust. And there's an inclination too toward wonder and glory. Wonder and glory. You see, the Psalms are a collection of prayer poems that at some point in the history of the people of God were stitched together in order to sustain and form God's people while they waited for the Messiah. To give them the words to pray as they waited for the coming hope of the Messiah. And as we look at this collection of prayers and poems, um, it's actually quite, it stands out, it should stand out to us that Psalm 1 stands right at the beginning of this great river of prayer. Because Psalm 1 doesn't really fit the model. It doesn't really fit the prayer genre. It looks much more like a proverb than it does a psalm. And that should stand out to us and, ask, and cause us to ask, why is this here? Why does this thing that doesn't look like the rest of the other things why is this thing here? And I think this morning as we look at it, um, I think what we'll find is this, is that this psalm, Psalm 1, out of all of the inclinations that exist in the whole book of Psalms, there is one defining inclination of the heart that is absolutely fundamental for the people of God. And it serves as ballast for us as we walk through all of the different range of emotions and the ups and downs that exist in the Psalms, I mean, those of you who are familiar with the Psalter know that the kinds of things that people are experiencing, the kinds of emotional highs and lows, I mean, people are just all over the map. The psalmists are all over the map. I think Psalm 1 stands out to us as a word of wisdom, a word about what will give us ballast as God's people as we journey together through all the highs and lows of the Psalms. It's the defining inclination of the heart that will guide us safely home. It'll guide us safely home. So let's look at this. Let's begin by looking at Psalm 1. Psalm 1, as was read to us, um, holds up two very different, two visions of two different kinds of life, Right? The psalmist lays bare at the outset of this whole book that there are essentially two different kinds of people living two very different kinds of life. And those two different kinds of life have very different ends. We can boil it down to this. Psalm 1 teaches us, Psalm 1 declares that there are people in the world who shun God's authority and instruction and they mark out their own way in the dim light of their own understanding. And then there is the person who delights in God's law, who's caught up in God's law, who's caught up in God's teaching, 
Now, I'm going to use the words teaching and law interchangeably here because the word law literally means teaching. And I'd like to, I, I think it's important to point out that like when I teach something, it's teaching, right? When God teaches something because he's the king, it's law. That what, that's what makes the difference between teaching and law. But I think we can think of them interchangeably. So the people, uh, the people that are grounded are people who delight in God's teaching, in God's law. They're entranced with it. They're obsessed with it. All of the delight of their heart is caught up in it. I don't know about you, but this, for me, is sometimes difficult to envision what a, what a life that looks like it's caught up in the delight of God's teaching and law is. I mean, does this mean that we're the kind of people who have, you know, Christian sayings, you know, have Scripture posted all over our houses? Does this mean that we're the kind of people, maybe it should, who, who've memorized vast, you know, quantities of Scripture, who've taken it in and who are constantly thinking about it, who, you know, are sitting in a meeting at work, and kind of dazing off because really what they're thinking about is they're, you know, they're reciting sort of Psalm 23 to their self in their head and they're thinking about how the, the Lord is their shepherd and you know, they have to constantly be interrupted because, and called back into the meeting because they're thinking about something else. I mean, what does it look like to be a person who delights in God's law or God's teaching? And I think for us to really, um, to really enter into this and to get a, get a picture of what it looks like to be that kind of person, um, I think we have some challenges because I think the way that we often think about God is that we, we don't often think of him as the teacher and the king that he is. We don't often ascribe to God the quality of brilliance. We don't often think of him as the teacher who actually is the only teacher in the world who is qualified to lead us into life because he's the one who made the world. He's the king who made the world. He's the king who understands how the world works because he made it. And he's the king who's willing to teach us how to flourish in the world that he's made. I'd like us to just walk back through this and just think about it a bit as we think about what it looks like for God um, to be the king and the teacher of humanity. And I think it'd be good to just reflect back a little bit and think about the garden. And I'm going to intentionally start here at the table because I want us to get a sense. I want us to get a sense of the garden where, that God created as the space that was designed for close fellowship with him. This place that was designed for human flourishing. This place that was so saturated with the bond of love and faithfulness that the word shalom had to be applied to it. It's, it's the bond of perfect love and faithfulness that exists between God and his people, Adam and Eve themselves, and between Adam and Eve and creation. God designs this world, makes this place for them to live in, and he gives them a task. He says, your role in this place is to extend my loving reign to the rest of creation to take my reign of love and, and spread it all throughout creation, to manage creation. He, he gives them his constant word and communication with him in order to keep this shalom intact and in motion. 
And this is a place where their every need is met. Every need they could ever have is met. But you know that, that um, God's command is this, this one command in the garden is that you do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for if you do, you will surely die. This has always been so interesting to me when I think about, I remember reading this. I don't know if you remember reading this for the first few times, and I remember thinking, why would God not want them to have the knowledge of good and evil? Isn't it a good thing to have the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, how do you know how you're supposed to live if you don't have the knowledge of good and evil? I think what's happening here is this, is that God wants his his creation. God wants his creation to look to him constantly for him to determine what is good and evil, for them to see him as the keeper, the sole keeper of what is good and what is evil. Now think about this. Now I don't know if there was anger in the garden. This is an interesting question, right? Um, Because anger is not sin. But imagine with me for a moment that maybe one day Adam is doing something that Eve doesn't like, right? Um, He thwarts her will in some way, and she feels like, I don't don't like that. Now, again, this is speculative, okay? I'm, I'm putting this under the heading. I'm not quite sure about this, but let's think for a moment together. Because anger is not sin, right? But that messes with us, right? Because we we think it is. We think it's bad. Imagine that she thwarts his will for a second, and she thinks for a second, I'd like to clock that man. I'd like to clock him. But what she does is she looks at God, and she says, the situation has arisen where this man has done this thing I do not like. And I want to... I think of one response out of a catalog of responses might be to clock him. And God, because he's the keeper of what's good and what's evil, says no. That's not the way that I made you to resolve conflict. What you would see if you did that is that if you clocked him, he would want to clock you back. And it would spiral. So thank you for asking me. I'm saying don't do it, but instead you should just talk to him and share with him how it frustrated you. You see, God's the keeper of what's good and what's right and what's evil. But the human tendency is to want to own good and evil for ourselves because we want to live autonomously. We don't want to depend upon God for everything. This is a fundamental human tendency. We don't want to look to him for that. We want to decide it for ourselves. So the serpent knows that they're right to be, to be tempted and taken away. And so he says, hey, did God really say this? Is he really good? He calls into question the goodness and the truthfulness of God. And they take the fruit and they eat it. And all of a sudden, what happens? They're expelled from the garden. And all of a sudden, human creatures, human creatures have their own internal law to obey. I decide what's right for me. I decide what's good. I decide what's evil. How does the the scriptures capture it this way? Every man did what was right in his own eyes. So it's not long at all before 
one person right, gets angry at another person and says, I'd like to clock him. As a matter of fact, I'd like to do more than that. And all of a sudden, there's blood on the ground. And people live so far away from God, and they begin to wander further and further away from His presence, further and further away from this bond of love and fidelity and this bond of shalom that characterized them. Until God steps in and says, I want to bring all of you back. I want to bring my people back. So the first move that He makes toward His people is the move of giving them the law. We have the image of Moses coming down off the mountain with the tablets. And these tablets, on these tablets are written words that God knows will create a social framework that will put his will and his character into motion, into the social fabric of the community. Again, as an attempt to try to restore some of what was lost here at the garden. But it's only this external law in this external rules, and it's difficult for people to follow it. And, and, and so they're called upon to meditate on it, and, and, but it's still very external to them, right? The next move is the move that we make with the, with the giving of the Psalms. Not quite as dramatic as the giving of the law. But if you look at the book of Psalms, uh, when, you, when, we, when we look at Torah, there are five books of Moses. This is what people held up. This is what is held up as the law of God, the five books of Moses. Uh, the people that put the psalm book together, the psalms together, arranged it in five books as well. And in many ways, it's a symbol that this is a new Torah. This is a new teaching from God. Now think about it like this. It doesn't replace what was given here. It elaborates and builds on it and adds to it. Now what does it add to it? Well, the psalms... Give us the words to say again, right? Here, here, what we have restored is just the social fabric, the relationship to God and the relationship to each other, the rules to follow if we want to restore the social fabric. But we're still missing the deep and loving communication that existed in the garden. But when we get here, when we get the Psalms, we get this deep and loving and honest communication that existed in the garden back. It's recovered. Then the next movement in the teaching of God is the coming of Christ. We've got the prophets in there. We're not going to take time to talk about them, but so important. But we've got the coming of Christ who comes and he gives us. You've got to remember the image here is Jesus standing on the mountain, the king standing on the mountain, giving a new teaching, right? A new law. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the peacemakers. He puts a new teaching and a new law and practice. And Jesus' teaching doesn't replace, it adds and elaborates upon everything that has been built upon at this point. And it goes deeper and deeper into the human person. It goes straight to the heart because Jesus knows that the problem with the law was that it didn't capture and touch the human heart. And so Jesus says, you've heard, you've heard you shall not murder. But I tell you, don't even call your brother a fool. Don't even let the tiniest bit of hatred get into your heart. Jesus goes straight to the heart and he replaces it. And then we get back to the next level of teaching. 
the next level of God's initiative, which is the movement of the Spirit of God at Pentecost. And this is the fulfillment of all of the prophecies that one day again, God would write His law on people's hearts and fill them with His Spirit. And that's where we live today. So, thinking about all of that, with all of that, thinking about this beautiful garden that God has given us, and this beautiful teaching that comes through the Spirit, and then the temptation that we all still face towards autonomy and deciding for ourselves what's good and evil. Let's look at Psalm 1. Blessed is the person who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. You see, it's two different kinds of people. People who really believe that they can have eternal an eternal quality of life, that they can flourish, then they can have goodness and experience it in the world by, by owning goodness for themselves and people who are submitted, who are so submitted that they delight in the teaching of God and again look to Him for good, for the, for the definition of what is good and evil. Look to Him for the way to live in the world. The psalmist says, that the person who delights in the law, who delights in God's teaching, they are like a tree that's been planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. and all that he does, he prospers. The person who has submitted themselves to God's teaching and God's ways is stable and nourished and fixed. And when difficult times come, and when, when drought comes, and when disease comes, that person, because of their groundedness, still flourishes, still bears fruit. Eugene Peterson translates Psalm 1 this way. He says, this, this particular verse, he says, this person that delights in God's law is like a tree replanted again in Eden. A tree replanted again in Eden. Because when we submit ourselves to God's ways, we draw upon the goodness and the nourishment and the care and the provision and the wisdom that existed in the garden. The nourishment and the care and the wisdom and the provision that we were created for that we were made for. The psalmist says, but the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I find it interesting that that the psalmist doesn't say that the wicked are like a tree that doesn't flourish or a little bit of a smaller tree, right? Or a bush. No, the wicked are not like any of that. They're like chaff, the tiny bit of the husk of wheat that is so light and so nothing that the second you throw the wheat up into the air, the chaff is captured up into the wind and blown away. 
This goes back to the garden, folks. As soon as you eat of it, you will, true, you will surely die. You will begin to wither. You will begin to become nothing. You will begin to die. The psalmist says this is still the destiny of those who do not delight in God's law, who are not captivated by it. So what does this mean for us? What does, this, what does this mean for us? How can we listen to this teaching? I guess the question for all of us this morning is this. Are we like Adam and Eve? Are we like the wicked? Are we like the sinners and the scoffers in the psalm? Are we still living under the powerful illusion and the lie that flourishing and stability and eternal life can be gained through self-rule? Or are we given over to delight in the law of God? Are we given over trusting that if we delight in him and obey him and submit to him, that God will plant us like a, tr- like a tree whose leaf does not wither, whatever, whatever he does. Where are we this morning? Who is teaching us who to, how to live? Who is teaching us what's good and what's evil? Is it our favorite political philosophy? Is that teaching us what's good and what's evil? Is it Game of Thrones? Is that what's teaching us what's good and evil? Is it The Bachelor? I certainly hope not. Is it our master's degrees and our PhDs? Is it Lifehacker? Where are we learning to live this morning? What vision of goodness are we submitting our lives to? And where is God calling us to move and to trust him and his vision of goodness and shalom for the world? I want to take a couple minutes and make this very practical at the end here. Because I know we could stay in the realm of the theoretical, right, and think about this, but I want to put in front of us a bit of an exercise that I think might help us to begin to become the kind of person who delights in God's law in the course of our everyday lives, delights in God's teaching. Um, I was part of a discipleship group um, for a while that got together intentionally and really sought to pay attention to what God was saying to us so that we could submit to him. It took it for granted that God was speaking to us as his people through his word and then also in our hearts, um, in, our, in our spirits, primarily through his word, but also in our hearts. It took it for granted that God wanted to speak to us. And we all together learned to pay attention to certain events in our lives that, that would help us stop and reflect and say, God, what are you saying to me? And are you calling me to submit to you in a, different, in, in, in a way that I've never submitted to you before in my life? 
And we looked together at four different things that would happen in our lives that would cause us to stop and to reflect and say, God, what are you saying to me? And how can I submit to you in this? And how can I obediently respond? There were four things that we looked for. And I'm going to give you sort of these these images to, to think about them through. The first image was the image of a speed bump. Okay? And the speed bump kinds of moments and events were those things that like happened to you, happened to me over and over again. The same sort of thing that happens over and over again. I think about the fight that I have with Sharon, the argument that I have with Sharon, and it seems like it comes up so frequently that we can just give it a number, right? And I just say, hey, number six. And she goes, yeah, number six response. And I go, okay. <laughs> you, know? you know, I mean, it's this thing that just happens over and over and over again. I know we all have these things that happen in our lives over and over again, right? And we blow past them. I want to encourage you, if you have this way that you get your feelings hurt, or this offense that is taken, or um, a thing that happens to you, it just seems like it happens to you over and over. I find myself in this situation over and over again. I want to encourage you, if that sort of situation arises over the next week, stop, pay attention to it, and say, God, how can I, what, how do you want me to submit myself to you in this? What do I need to listen to you about? Speed bumps. The second thing to pay attention to are brick walls. Okay? So it's like you're going along and all of a sudden, crash. Crash. You just run into a brick wall. And it seems like your life kind of blows apart. That's the time to stop and reflect and say, God, in this moment, I need to attend to you, to listen to you, to listen to you speak to me and ask you, God, how do I need to submit to you in order to live more faithfully for you in this. The third thing would be visions. Every now and then we're going through, so these things can be either positive or negative, right? The third thing would be visions. Somehow you're, you're going somewhere and all of a sudden something lands in your heart and you think, you know what? Someday I'd like to do this thing. I think someday I should do this thing that's out here. That's weird. I've never had that thought before, but All of a sudden, I'm having this thought that someday I should do this, a big career change or a small career change or some change, right? In those moments when we have visions like that, it's important to stop and attend and ask God, God, what are you saying to me? How can I respond in obedience? And then the fourth thing, the image that captures it is the image of a mirror, I don't know if you all have experienced this. I imagine you have. Where all of a sudden um, somebody says something to you or you engage with somebody and all of a sudden you see yourself more clearly than you've ever seen yourself before. You see a part of yourself that disturbs you or frightens you. Or you see a part of yourself that you think, I think God delights in that part of me, right? I think he really appreciates that, and that's who I'm made to be. In those moments, it's important to stop and to attend and listen. Submit ourselves again to God. Say, God, how can I obey you? 
and follow you in this. The great tradition teaches us that the movement from scoffer to delighter, the movement from sinner to delighter, the movement from wickedness to delighter happens one step at a time, and it's fueled by the Spirit of God who is always at working us, drawing us back to shalom. And it's our role to respond to him as he draws us back. Amen?